It's the Halloween harvest oh, officially. It is. It is October thirty first, and we are bringing you the harvest. Boy, that Joe Bob special is pretty interesting. With all of the um, Halloween movies he showed. You're really gonna call it that way? All right. <laughs> let's talk about what he showed, Hank. Let's, let's see. I'm just completely astounded that he showed only Western movies. Or no, he showed Halloween one, four, and five. We're gonna we're gonna stick to that claim. It's Halloween day for us too, folks. Um, boy, all the things that have happened on this Halloween. Children of the Corn. It's not a good series. We've established that through many episodes now, four episodes to be exact. And on this fifth episode, we'll be talking about the remake of Children of the Corn from 2009, directed by Donald Borchers, one of the producers from the first film. And not very good. One star. That's hey, it. On. That's the end of it. But there's not. Much. It's a remake of Children of the Corn. I this mean, is the Halloween special. Special. You got to get excited. It's Halloween. It's spooky. There's witches and goblins afoot. It's Samhain. You know the the cult of Thorn is. Oh wait, wrong series. Never mind. It's the wrong series. It's still. It's it's the spooky. The season. cult of corn. Hold on. The cult Dimension of corn. Still wants- <laughs> okay. Yeah. No. We could totally be. That's what we could call. This uh, over now. That could be my sequel. Like we could add Michael Myers into it. It's a cult now. Oh man, we are going to make so much money off this sequel. But we got to get spooky with it. I mean, Children of the Corn 2009 isn't entirely. This was written um, for the screen by Stephen King, and he wrote the original Children of the Corn, and it was turned down. So I feel that this was probably a script that he just dusted off and picked up from the 1980s, and maybe they reworked some things. The characters are a little bit different. The story's a little bit different. Um, As we talked about on the last episode with just unredeemably asshole characters, the movie begins with just two unredeemably asshole Asshole characters. characters. Yeah, and that's a big... She's horrid in this. She is annoying, You don't want to want anyone's death, and that's all you're hoping for is these characters to immediately be smited from the fucking earth. But you've got a different concept here. The movie starts with a different child preacher, and in Children of the Corn, the whole concept is when they reach the age of 19, they are sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose. But... Somehow Isaac never seems to have that happen to him. In the first movie, it's only a few years later. In the short story, it's 12 years. This in the remake continues with the 12-year-long aspect. So the prophet that delivered this, that's kill all the parents and kill all the adults, has since been sacrificed to he who walks behind the rose and is now Isaac. So you've got, again, like with some of the other movies, a very cool concept and story 
not all of it is delivered as well, but this is more like face value. Um, it's kind of like the remake of not the remake, but the made for TV version of the TV miniseries of the shining. It delivers a very more Stephen King story. The character development of, you know, people learning something is kind of tossed out, but it sticks very much more so to Stephen King's original idea. Spoilers ahead. The couple dies as they should, because that makes the story much more interesting. And it just moves on and then moves into, I don't know, King kind of had a part two idea. And this shows up in the short story. There's a character named Ruth who is with Malachi and Malachi. They change. It's no longer 19, it's 18 that you must be sacrificed to who walks behind the row. Malachi's pregnant wife, Ruth, uh, at the end of the story, questions her faith and questions the, the cult and he who walks behind the row and all that jazz. And the story ends, and this holds a similar format, but it is pretty lengthy. It's a thick bitch. Well, like, this one is, I mean, it's a lot more of the same, because if you've seen the original, you've pretty much seen this movie. I like the fact that they took it to the 70s and he was a Vietnam vet and all that kind of stuff that all well it keeps the, like we've we mentioned this on another episode that it keeps what makes sense you do this in modern time it wouldn't be anywhere near as fluent but you have it uh, as the original story happens in 1963 and then 12 years later it happens and you make this a timepiece which can be a little bit more pricey for a production but this being by the sci-fi channel I think it had an okay you know amount of money going toward it you can do something with the story you can make it scary but when you make it in an apartment complex or when you just make it in a field with billy drago or not even a field billy drago's house somewhere in a vacant hollywood lot there's just nothing terrifying no and this one i mean we got back to the basics which i enjoyed um you had a kind of a retelling of the original story um to where it resonates a little bit more. You're not trying to make a sequel. You're not trying to do anything new with it. You're just kind of telling the story again. But I think part of the problem with the way they did it is it's just, it, it feels very TV movie. Like, um, it doesn't get, as well, as it really should be. I, I like, think unfortunately that's, you know, what we we have to review and deal with it as, cause it specifically is a TV movie. Although it does have brief nudity, it is like TV movie. 100%. This wasn't theatrical. This wasn't directed video. This was fucking on demand, man. Yeah. And it, it just, they didn't take it to the, like the, the levels that it could have been. And the, the, like the acting wasn't as good. Like the child acting wasn't very good. Um, Are you saying young Mac is not entertaining? I'm saying he's not very entertaining. Yeah, the kid that played Isaac is young Mac from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. Oh, well, that's, I'm learning new things every day. Yep. We uh, got the facts. We got the facts. We got the facts. We got the facts. Was that a Coco's reference? Yeah, I make a lot of them. That's the first Coco reference you've ever made on this podcast. It isn't. It's like the third or fourth, actually. <laughs> but like overall i mean it's an okay product i will give it that much i mean it, it's competent looking at um, the other movies that we can compare it to uh, its predecessors of the last two this is far more entertaining and much more palatable yeah i mean most definitely because it, like where it degenerated to the last like god fucking eight years of it i from two on for the most part i guess or from four on um, it's definitely a step in a right direction. I just don't think it's it, it stepped far enough, and nor do I think they like 
I don't know. They tried to keep it as an aspect of it being almost a throwaway, because in the story, the characters are just thrown away, that the wife dies, uh, and, and the guy is pretty much eaten by he who walks behind the rose, who is very mad that the kids couldn't do the sacrifice for him and broke, you know, his weird ungodly rules. So they tried to do it in the story, but it just lasts too long. And like you said before, this is like an EC comic sort of thing. It would have worked as a Tales from the Crypt episode. So if you're going to do it in a 90-minute TV format and make it lengthy... You need to add something additional or make the characters redeemable, and that's what works at the first something. Because like, once I've seen the original, and well, we're I like it. those characters. Like at least that worked. Those two characters might have been flat, and it might have not been the greatest performances of all time. But I didn't want them to die. These characters, I really wouldn't have minded either of them getting hit with a fucking hatchet or a sickle in the face. It's not even so much that I want them to die as much as I just don't care. I don't care if they die. I don't care that they're going through this. I don't care about much of anything going on. Yeah, you're going to California. Great. Why? Who fuck it? You're and married. A lot of it, when you've seen a story before and you do a remake like this, why remake it almost exactly like the original was because well, the movie, there's nothing new for it. The original movie didn't have Linda Hamilton screaming and obnoxiously reciting, you baby killer, you kill a bunch of babies in Vietnam, you baby killing baby killer from baby killing Mick Hill. I bet your name is Mick Baby Killer, baby killer, baby killing killer babies. Like, God damn it. At that point, I just couldn't, you know, get past what's going on in the movie. When she finally meets her in timely ending, you don't give a shit. There's no sympathy. And then it just surmises into this douchebag wandering around a cornfield till he gets eaten. All right. I'm starting yeah. to think the kids don't have too bad of a fucking idea here by the end of the series. But if you're going to do a remake like this, you, <clears throat> you might want to explore He Who Walks Behind the Rose more. You might want to take it into like a new interesting direction or just something. But it was well, they at the beginning an updating they... of the same exact story, which just is not interesting at the beginning with the child preacher in the tent they they bring up and this is where i derive my whole you know uh, uh pre new testament old god canaanite god i think they mention that it's the the deity moloch okay so my mysticism it's a it's a sacrificial god and it was uh, the the big golden calf that's referenced and heavily worshiped in the bible the, the non-believers in the old testament worshiped this deity and sacrificed to it and it's a whole thing. Uh, I don't know. Go read. Go read the Old Testament. But it's expounded on a little bit, but not enough. It just quickly drifts into let's get into our characters and our characters are absolutely reprehensible. And then there's not enough with, I think, not even he who walks behind the row. I just don't think there's enough with the children of the corn that you don't get a good view of how they run things or what the whole setup or what's going on or how they've managed to do this. But then they cut into these little pieces of like, but look, they have factories. They have this like woodworking and metalworking and they've got all these things. They've got the society, but you're just showing me these clippets and these signets of things and stuff and not really explaining what's happening. How about this as an idea? If you're going to remake children of the corn, this is not a great idea. It's just an idea. Why don't you focus on Isaac? Why don't you make him the protagonist of the movie? Not even necessarily just Isaac. Just focus on or even Malachi. Like, why don't you like get into the the cult itself? Yeah, no, just as the opposed cult. to yeah. having outsiders being introduced to this cult. Let's like really. Get well, into I mean, it. you could have taken these outsiders that you hated and then taken them from their introduction and segue into Isaac and Malachi. But the cult itself and the inner workings is really the more interesting aspect of the story here, and none of these sequels bother to go into it. And as we've mentioned before, each one that does go into it by the next movie, it's changed, and it doesn't matter. 
matter what had been said. So if it's Jeremiah or Ezekiel or Jebediah or Micah, it doesn't fucking matter anymore because new movie, new series, just focusing on what's scary. It's not necessarily some corn monster. It's this religious cult that yes. could just go deep and deep and deep, but it never goes there. Well, they, like, what if you made a maniac, like a Bill Lustig's maniac style story about this following Malachi around? You can, you know, like, introduce the cult and all that stuff to it, where it's not just like a lone slasher thing, but like to really get into the mind of the killer and the mind of the kids, as opposed to just focusing on outsiders who have to be reintroduced to all these tropes that we already have known for plenty of years through this Children of the Corn story. You're like, fucking corn kids kill. Everybody knows what it's about. So let's do something new and interesting with it, and we still can't do that. Corn kids kill for God. I mean, that would be kind of... Yeah, it's just the same old story. I just don't find it that engaging. Yeah, no, it's that's kind of the end of the Children of the Corn remake because it's not that engaging. I think it holds its own... It's a successful remake, and especially something that came from the likes of the Sci-Fi Channel, which I snootily uh, point my nose at. I don't particularly care for Asylum or Sci-Fi Channel productions at all. It's It was watchable. I like the spin on the story, and I like Stephen King's involvement, and what makes it in this placement is the next movie is sort of a sequel to it, but also obviously a sequel to the other movies in the series. Sort of. So... I guess we can just move into John Gulliger's territory of Children of the Corn Runaway. Well, I will go ahead and say this. John Gulliger is a talent. And, like, he does not care oh, okay. about the subject matter. We discussed um, a term uh, a couple episodes ago. I don't remember if it's Stephen King territory or prior to that, but adequate. John Gulliger is absolutely 100% adequate at whatever task he is given, whether it's shot on an iPhone, which I, I don't, I can't say this movie for certain I think it's an iPhone. I think it's like a, a market and digital camera. That's what yeah, probably something that maybe they got at a Sam's Club then, because it's not the, the greatest end. But given even that, John Gulliger manages to make it work. Everything that he is given, everything he does, and like you were getting into, it doesn't quite matter what the subject matter is or... What he's, he's a hired gun. Back. He's a Fulci is what he is. He's good. <laughs> he's really good at what he does, and he manages to take something that otherwise could be somewhat dull and lackluster, and uh, yeah, he, he does his thing. He uh, finds a way. Well, I mean, with this one, it's just, it's the same tired old plot. It's a previous corn kid coming back, and the things that happen, it's just, I just don't care. I don't care about, like, what's going on with these characters and the story and I just think that this series is dead I don't think it needs any sequels I don't think it needs any remakes I think the idea has been dead since 1983 and well, this, this one shows- this one tries to refresh things a little bit because you can carry from the the remake the character Ruth Malachi's wife that this is Ruth and she, she has come back years later so she's last seen pregnant in the Children of the Corn remake and now she is a child that she has been living with uh pretty much as a hobo from place to place just trying to survive until she returns to the Midwest and Nebraska, maybe. I don't quite remember where they're exactly at. I think it's toward or near Gatlin. They're coming back toward the area. Somewhere that is all, uh, long story short, the whole town is survivors that were part of the cult. So this is Isaac's cult that lived and have waited for her to return and that her son completes the prophecy and they can return forward with a new Isaac onto this earth. Not necessarily Isaac, but a new prophet for he who walks behind the rose on this earth. 
But they make odd reference to Lur and Children of the Corn 7 that everyone died in a fire and survived, which is only referenced in that movie. So it's possibly just trying to write everything you can from all the series together, but it doesn't really matter at this point. Essentially, it's Ruth from the short story or Children of the Corn remake. And Ruth has survived. Her and her child are surviving as they can, return to a Midwestern town. It's the cult. They have found harm's way. She's hallucinating throughout the entire story that there's this ghost little girl that's somewhat like the other movies. It turns out it's actually just her, that she's been horrifyingly murdering people, committing and fulfilling the prophecy until her child eventually kills her and becomes the new end of the movies with her child preaching as the new Isaac, pretty much. So it returns to the story, it returns to the series. It's it's as everything that John Gulliger does adequate and it's entertaining. It's not boring. There's no parts it's that you go... It's not the worst on the list. I can no, say I, it's Well, I can say it's really... This. this is one of the stronger... It's got a 3.8 rating out of 10 on IMDb, and out of the entire series, I would give this a stronger uh, story coherency. It fits in with Children of the Corn, and it just doesn't completely suck. I mean, and it really is who fucking um, directed it. And guess who wrote it, though? old Joel. So it's a Dimensions movie, you know. We don't have any mention, any reference of Stephen King at this point. He is finally gone. Well, how about this? How about this for an idea? Why don't you turn The Void into Children of the Corn? And I'm not saying down to the specifics, but where you, like, really take this into a interesting direction, like, where you could have, like, some weird fucking mutated shit, or you could have some, like, creepy cultists in robes, and so it's just... Little kids don't instill fear in me. Just think about like a bunch of little kids in like some faceless robes as part of the cult. So, like something change up, like phantasm, Fan- like whatever. Just not like like kids in coveralls. I mean, you got and midgets and shit. Who cares? Like some little redneck kids coming after me with a knife. And, uh, like what? What's new? This is my everyday life for the most part. I, it just it's not scary to me. Wait, what? Mm-hmm. What 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 about your everyday life? What what is happening at home? Little redneck. I live around a bunch of crazy fucking rednecks who are all like meth heads and shit. So yeah, that doesn't seem like a suitable explanation. That's not you know that's my everyday life. Getting chased around by little kids with knives. I don't think most of America has uh, problems like that. I don't. You don't live where I live, man. No, but uh, you just don't say something like that and let it go. <laughs> well. Do you need help? A, Do you need to, you know, like, like get I out? Could some help. I could get out. It would help. I could. It would help. Let the production I, company know once they let us out of the cellar they've kept us in. I, if I didn't live in a sea of red hats, it might help my life out a little bit. Well, somewhere in the deep south, there seems to be a strange uprising of children. You know, you could possibly be controlled by he who walks behind the rose. You don't think that's that's what's going on, that all the adults are being killed and your old ass is going to be on the chopping block for a bunch of weird religious children. Have you ever met farm kids? They're yeah. Really, they're fucking creepy. When I was very, very young, I lived in rural Pennsylvania in a Mennonite community, and we lived in a shared backyard that was just rows and rows and rows of, guess what, Cornfields, And, you know, you walked off the front porch and when it wasn't season, it was just these barren dead rows that would be frosted over. And just as long as you can see absolute fucking nothing, you know, kind of like a 
Wim Wenders movie, just deserts and a lot of nothing. And it's just hopeless and scary. And then when they fill in, it's even more hopeless and scary because it's just tall grass, essentially, and frightening that you can't see anything. So, well, they, you need to use that more in the Children of the Corn style series because well, I mean, that's that's what like the, the visuals first, maybe second one they haven't really used corn at all. The first movie, even too, they you know, I guess just ignorance played into hand with filming is they went out, they did scouting, and they did filming locations. And you know, this is great, this looks really good. And they went out right before harvesting season, so everything was green and lush and very fertile. And when they went to shoot, it was coming into September where everything is brown and starting to die, so they had to use styrofoam corn and spray paint it constantly and then i guess that just was a a warning for the rest of the movies i mean part three you've got the back lot filled with corn that's obviously just two or three feet they shot over and over and over again and then the rest of the movies i think what part five they drive past several cornfields then they obviously drive shots yeah they get to a set at some point after that and the rest of the movie takes place at the set but Children of the Corn, there's not a lot of corn in it, and unfortunately, no Jonathan Davis whatsoever, so it's very misleading, but I will say it is C-O-R-N, not K-O, backward R-N. Oh, God. Why did we go on this fucking journey? This was a mistake. This you was know, a mistake from I've been thinking that since, yeah, the beginning of it, not just Children of the Corn, going to the start of Stephen King, two guys that inherently don't seem to like Stephen King shouldn't have dedicated <laughs> an entire month of their lives to talking about him, because none of this comes off very nice at all. Well, I mean, he's never, like, it's not particularly his fault. He's a much No, better. we're just dicks, that's the problem. Well, as a, as a <laughs> book, a lot of his stuff works, but when you transfer it into a film... And you don't do it appropriately. If if you have a fucking massive budget, a Stephen King movie can be great. But like, you know, a lot of things have to be rewritten and then people get mad and you have these two, you know, these massive documentaries and these fanboys that split down the line of like, no, the shining wasn't done right. And people angry over fucking Stanley Kubrick, where I'm I'm in better. Well, I'm in no position or no place to even like review or talk about what I feel Stanley Kubrick is as a director because of his place as a director. I can review a movie and say whatever is whatever from my personal opinion, but in all intents and purposes, Stanley Kubrick is one of the greatest goddamn talents to ever make a fucking motion picture. And I think everybody can, you know, accept that universally, whether you like him or not or have problems with him. The man knew what the fuck he was doing. His version of The Shining is better than the book. I'll I bet fucking money on I, it. I'm sorry. I would rather have a guy in a bear suit blowing a ghost than have any amount of CGI. That shit counts. was in the book, though, dude. I mean, like, like that was part of the story he connected over. A, a lot of it was there, but, like, we discussed this on another he episode. he made it work. Well, the thing... made it work artists don't want to realize and deal with is that you spend hours creating something and you've got a look and you've got a concept and you you've got this this whole thing in your head and one person can look at it for one second and go oh is this and say something that crushes and ruins your world and your dream because it's not what you spent months creating and trying to come up with and unfortunately that's what art is somebody like stanley kubrick in the audience took the shining they reviewed it they thought something differently than the fucking writer obviously and created something from their perspective and point of view. Absolutely everything is transient from different point of views. You could be a massive fan of Children of the Corn Runaway and jerk off to it every night because it's the greatest movie in the world for you. 
I'm very sorry if you do, but it's fucking, it doesn't matter. I mean, if we're going to review and like fully rate this, I'll give it a two. I'll give it a higher rating than the last fucking two movies. One of the remake. I'll also, I'll give the remake a three. Actually, I'll give this a two and uh, two cold points. The remake. I'll give a three and two cold points. Uh, when, uh, the remake's a one. This is a one and a half. Still not I, very good. I'm just bored by the subject matter. I have no complaints out of a whole show of complaints when it comes to Runaway. I am a I'm an elitist, so no. You're an, so where is okay? Let's let's be an elitist here. What do you say is the uh, all out of all of them? Whatever we can think of, but out of all of them, what's the greatest Stephen King movie ever? Oh, good God. I mean, that just that can come on many... I mean, just your opinion, not like, you know, like we're rating this on film or technique or whatever, whatever you just yeah. think is the best. Because The Shining is probably going to be number one. Yeah. And you have, like, Carrie and stuff like that in there and following suit. Like, for me, just on like, sheer watchability, see, I love some of the shittier ones. I love Silver Bullet. I love uh, Maximum... Overdrive. Okay, so let me rephrase it to what is out of all of the ones you can think of your favorite Stephen King movie? Goddamn, with a tough question right now. Because I would have to go through. Yeah, I don't know what's a better King. or worse. Because I think Shawshank Redemption's a good movie. I think Stand By Me is a good movie. Well, no, I mean, but... that, you can pick those. I mean, whatever you think's the best, like in your opinion. I mean, whatever. I think probably The Mist might be his best movie. The Mist is a really great movie. I, I already knew my answer. Um, I'm very, very fond of Christine. Christine's up there too. Christine's a high level one. Cujo's up there. I mean, he's got. And in all seriousness, now that you've really said it, though, like out of like the greatest and Stephen King stories, I'm gonna go with Shawshank and then uh, Stand by Me. Like those are really not horror stories, but those yeah, yeah. he's a better drama writer than he is. But it's Frank Darabont and fucking Rob Reiner. So obviously, weird one that I can remember Rob Reiner's name. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, uh, yeah. I can't get Owen Wilson or Orson Welles, but I'll remember Rob Reiner. And I don't even think The Miss particularly has anything to do with Stephen King of why that's such a great film. I think that's more Frank Terremont than it actually is Stephen Did King. Did you so. see the miniseries or TV show or whatever the hell that is? I had no interest in the TV show. The only TV show I have been watching is Creep Show, and that shit is incredibly, like, positive, positively me- mediocre. It's I feel like, without pissing in the punch bowl that Creep Show is definitely directed for a younger audience and maybe trying to get, I don't know, youth involved in horror again. I mean, it's like Greg Nicotero talks about it a lot of how he was a young man that got involved with Romero, like 18, 17 years old, and it changed his life. And it, it just seems to have a very childlike aspect to things. And I, I don't know. It's better than it has any right to be i wouldn't say it's a, like a hell of a like the first one or the second one it's better than creep show i think it's it's definitely within the like it, it's hitting a sweet spot a lot of the time they're doing sometimes they're doing a lot of the uh you know the, like the weird lighting and the the weird like backgrounds that george the Mary comic used. book stuff is cool yeah. i mean the neon is is a cool reminiscent to george romero and what's been a lot of fun is the easter eggs if you spend a lot of time watching the episode yeah, the ashtray that appears in every segment of the original Creepshow movie appears in absolutely every fucking scene almost of the show. Uh, Chief Woodenhead is in episode one, I think, toward the See, end. Uh, well, episode- yeah, after, like story two, episode one. Yeah. Because like, the there's, broken up. 
there's a lot of cool mixes and, and adds into things. Um, one of my favorite things so far was the first story. Episode one is in the freezer at Adrian Barbo's diner was a, a box of the stuff. Yeah. And it's just, there's a lot of weird fun in that show and I actually enjoy it. I think it's cheap. Um, which I don't have that big of a problem. Well, you know, here's something that I think is kind of funny is is Shudder is Shudder, and it's always Shudder, and everything's broadcast to Shudder, and now that this show's doing well, it's all of a sudden AMC Shudder. So all the people involved that aren't Greg Nicotero aren't getting their names justly put out there whatsoever, but it is an AMC production, and it is Greg Nicotero. So it being cheap, I think, is a little of a cop-out that, you know, you can dump all this money into The Walking Dead, but give Creepshow a couple extra hundred at least. But uh, well, that's pet project, so they gave him some money. At least with the uh, the first um, segment, they had Adrian Barbeau, Giancarlo Esposito, Tobin Bell. They actually spent some money on some actors, and well, then geez. all the rest of them have been just random people for the most part, as opposed to DJ Qualls. Yeah, I was gonna say you got DJ What's His Nuts in one of them. You've had a, a couple cool people. But the special effects are all pretty taut. I know KMB is doing the special effects for all the episodes. The Here's special a great effects question. Have been really good. What's your favorite DJ Qualls movie? I know mine. I probably don't have any because I'm not a big fan of DJ Qualls. Mine is Hustle and Flow. No, uh, I have never seen Hustle and Flow. What? I've You've never, never seen, seen Hustle and Flow. Dude, 3-6 Mafia did the soundtrack. Whoop that trick. I am I'm going to make you suckers recognize I ain't playing ho. Oh, man. That, uh, ridiculous. You need to watch Hustle and Flow. When they lock us out of this basement and we don't have to drink corn wine and eat canned corn and dr- smoke corn husks, you have to watch Hustle and Flow. It is a great movie. And um, that one where DJ has to go to jail and Henry Rollins is in it and Eddie Griffin and the guy. The new guy? Very, yeah, the new guy. That one always reminded me of you. Oh, thanks. I, I appreciate you thinking I look like a weird stick figure character from film. Well, you are kind of tall and skinny and have webbed toes, you Dan Aykroyd-looking fuck. I ain't that fucking skinny, man. Neither's Dan Aykroyd. Oh, you're a fucking bitch. <laughs> you think they're ever going to let us out of the cellar, or are we just, you know... We've talked no, about every Children of the Corn movie. I'm tired. The ashtray is filled with corn husks and the bottle is empty. Happy Halloween. I hope everyone seriously spent their time wisely and didn't count down five days of Halloween with Death by DVD and you went out and got drunk and, I don't know. What do you do at Halloween? Yeah, you drank corn liquor, you worshipped he who walked behind the rose and you had a good Halloween. Do something witchy. Don't you see me on a hustle? you at? Shit, I was on my what own thing. Nigga, what you think I just run up in here and snap my fingers and make these Death by DVD was recorded live in Gatlin, Nebraska, in front of He Who Walks Behind the Road.